0: I think that we have our work cut out for us today. Uh, One of the the joys and difficulties of preaching through large sets of texts is we preach whatever is next in the queue. At times, the applications are very clear. At other times, there seems to be uh, a bit more difficulty in figuring out what this has to do with us. Just by way of review, last week we looked at Isaiah 46, and really these two chapters go hand in hand. Um, like two sides of a, a mirror, I guess you could say, or two things that are gathered together, maybe like a locket that you open up, and there's my picture on one side and Porter on the other side. This is Kate's locket I'm talking about, obviously. We see these two frames that go together, and in this uh, first part of this text in Isaiah 46, Bel and Nebo are the resident gods of Babylon and they are being carried throughout the town almost in a procession, like a religious festival where people were celebrating their gods. But what the author of Isaiah was doing in this text is saying, these gods that are supposed to be carrying you are being carried. The only movement they have is when the ox moses from one leg to the other leg, and the, the idols are shaking as they go. They are a burden. They're unable to save. All of this is in comparison to Yahweh, The God of Israel, who carries, sustains, saves, or rescues, and as the poet has been trying to make clear from Isaiah 40 up to this point, they're not comparable with God. It's impossible for Israel to be sitting around in exile with all of these resident gods, these statues, these images and to think that there's anything redeeming about them in light of who Yahweh is. Now remember, in this text, though, this is set within exile. This is set within times of suffering. This is set within times of disaster, destruction, removal from the land, and ultimately doubt and questioning. So for those individuals who are in exile looking around, they might have seen these gods and said, maybe there is something about them that's that's worth following. Remember, the Babylonians were conquering everybody. It seemed as though something was working out for them, so there was this threat always for the people in exile to be looking at these things, but the poet keeps coming back and says, stop, 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 stop looking at that. Yahweh is the one that's carrying you. And last week we talked about how very many times in our lives that happens in in these ways where we feel alone, and we feel isolated, and we go through difficult situations, whether they be relationship issues, or financial struggles, or job things, or work things, or any number of things happening right now in your life, and, and it's as if God is carrying you. We also went beyond that kind of sentimental understanding of God carrying us to understand that God carries our wrongdoing and our sin and tried to tie the gospel into that it's not just this god's going to sweep you up off your feet and make everything okay it's god picks us up with all of our junk with all of our sin with all of our transgressions and wears the weight of that because we can't do it ourselves we saw that last week and now this week in isaiah 46 there's a shift but again these two chapters go together in isaiah 46 because The rival gods are exposed and delegitimated. We see now that what the author is doing is going into empire. He's going into ideology. He's going into politics. He's saying, because these gods don't have status anymore, now I'm going to talk about your political structures and try to inform you that they also don't have any sort of warrant or power or things like that. So it goes like this. No gods equals no empire. And in the ancient world, this was commonplace. Gods were not just relegated to this room here, to the temple. They were a part of life, from crops growing or not growing, to having babies or not having babies, to all sorts of things. The gods were intimately involved in the everyday aspects of life, which in a weird way is really beautiful. And for us, I think that we've kind of even gone away from that because we have so much stuff out here maybe our mindset is totally different where it's not God being intimately involved in these things, it's us doing them so that we can come in here and then worship and have this time be sanctified. But I think we'll get into that as we go. The question about this, though, is what does a political empire of the 6th century BCE have to do with us? That's the quandary that I found myself in as we're looking at the poet going through this list of virgin daughter Babylon, and all these things that were going to happen to her, how that informs our life. First response is, wrong question. One thing I like to tell my students is they always have questions, and sometimes they're good questions and sometimes they're not good questions. There are no bad questions in the world of teaching we've heard, and we believe, and we affirm, sort of. But here, this is the wrong question to be asking, and what I'm trying to point out here is when we read this text, oftentimes the first and only thing that we try to do is take its truths and immediately apply them to ourselves as if the Bible was about me. The Bible ultimately is a story about redemption and it's a story about God and how he interacts with his people. So when we look at this text, Isaiah 47, and we immediately want a little nugget to take out and embroider on a pillow or wear on a sweatshirt with a sweet eagle flying on it or a coffee mug, we kind of miss the point. But there still is that second response. Okay, that's really great, Josh, but you can go beyond that. Yeah, what does it have to do with us? Because there still is this application in the text There still is this beauty that through the Bible, God gives us everything that we need for life and godliness. The teachings about himself, the teachings about who he is, the teachings about how he is going about his business. And in this text, it's difficult to understand what we could glean from it. The way I'm going to go about this, though, is we're just going to kind of march through. This isn't going to be like a complete verse-by-verse teaching, but I am going to try to pull some things out, keep you with me as we go, and then we'll get to how this text actually does have meaning or significance for us. So stay with me. Here we go. In verse 1, it says, Go down, sit in the dust, virgin daughter Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, queen city of the Babylonians, or daughter Chaldea, I believe some translations would have. Here, right from the bat, we understand that this is a specific type of literature, and for an ancient reader, bells and whistles would be going off all over the place. Basically, what's happening is this is a dirge. This is a funeral song. This is a lament, and they're lamenting Babylon. We saw this earlier in Isaiah 1. We actually didn't see this, but it's in there. I'm going to read it to you now, where Zion and Jerusalem and these towns are personified as women, Isaiah 1, it says, Your country is desolate. Your city burned with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. Daughter Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard. This is made even more clear in Lamentations, which is all about virgin daughter Zion. Here it says, How deserted lies the city. The city takes on this personification. It takes on this persona where it's once so full of people. How like a widow is she? Who was once great among the nations, she who was queen among the provinces has now become a slave. Verse six, all the splendor has departed from daughter Zion. Verse eight, Jerusalem has sinned greatly and so has become unclean. All who honored her despised her, for they have all seen her naked. She herself groans and turns away. This is really weird ancient literature. But what's happening is they're filling out this funeral song. They're filling out this dirge, this lament. They're using personification to talk about Babylon or Zion or Israel or these people. And they're talking about them in very, very, very graphic language. All who honored her despised her, for they have all seen her nakedness. These texts get a little bit risque in the images that are being put forth. Um, As we'll see in a bit, sometimes we see images of rape. Sometimes we see images of sexual impropriety. Sometimes we see this image of nakedness and how that plays out. And in this culture, a culture that's all based in shame and guilt, these things were really a huge deal. So to talk about how a city has fallen, this encapsulates it. Back to Isaiah, this, is, this poem is a dirge, it's a funeral song, it's a lament, but it's a lament for Babylon. Think of the worst person in the world and then think about singing a sad song about them when judgment is, is brought upon them. Sadly, for a lot of us, that's difficult to do. Reflect back to, and I don't want to get uber political here, but reflect back to the death of Osama bin Laden. For the American people, that was largely a plant your flag in the ground kind of celebration type moment where the flags were waving and America was back on top. In our context, we've seen how this plays out. Now imagine for the people that have been dispossessed from their land, that have been taken, their temple has been ravaged, their places of where they used to live have been destroyed, and now the poet is singing a funeral song for their captors. It continues, no more will you be called tender or delicate. These terms here conjure up the idea of luxury, the refinements of the court, the elegant life of carefree enjoyment. Babylon used to be great. Babylon used to be, if we're following that personified woman language, she used to be really pretty and really luxurious in her lifestyle and just had everything that she wanted Around her was there one of these Hebrew words. I believe it's uh, the word for delicate. And I don't have it memorized off the top of my head. I looked it up today. It means mollycoddled. She was mollycoddled. Whatever that means. But I mean, we get we get kind of the idea here that everything that she wanted was right at her fingertips. These people. No more will you be called tender or delicate. She is everything, according to one scholar that the most ambitious Judean might want to be. Remember, they're outside the land, they're seeing all the successes of their oppressors and they're saying, I want to be that. I want to have what that person has. Tap into that selfish vein that we all have where we all look around and we see other people and at times we say, I want that. Whether it's a relationship or a sweet car or a nice music collection or, I'll go there, a hulked body. I know that I'm pretty chiseled right now, but at times, you know, I can see other people and say, I wish that I was built like that or looked like that. You know what I mean? Um, There's always times when we have those moments, um, and again, for Israel, this could have been one of those moments where they looked around and said, they have everything. Why don't I just forsake God and follow their gods, and maybe I can become a part of what they have? In this text, though, it's all about to change. It's all about to get flipped upside down. Upside on its head here. In verse 2, it continues, Take millstones and grind flour, take off your veil, lift up your skirt, bare your legs, and wade through the streams. Again, kind of sexual language that some people have taken in that direction. Other people, though, have said this isn't just about the sexual stuff that goes along with war time atrocities, but it's she used to be laying around on those nice, fluffy couches but now she's got to roll her sleeves up and get dirty and go to work. The person who used to be up here as the oppressor now becomes the oppressed. The social status has completely shifted where the life that she once had is completely different. Your nakedness will be exposed and your shame uncovered. Again, some of that similar language that we see in the text. And now it comes to fruition in verse 3b where it says, I will take vengeance. This is God talking. I will spare vengeance. No one. Our Redeemer, the Lord Almighty, is his name, is the Holy One of Israel. And here we can see this is how God is taking care of his plan. This dirge is a farce. It's a literary structure that's just being used. It's almost like it's a satire. They're creating this form that makes sense to everyone in that culture, but the person that they're lamenting is not worthy of lamenting for this people group. It's completely feigned. Babylon's judgment at this point is only lyrical. I like to think of it as a rap battle, which I'm sure we're all familiar with, where you try to cut someone down through your lyrical prowess, where you start talking about yo mama this and yo mama that and you this and you that. It's all lyrical, but in those contexts, it accomplishes something. So here in this context, their judgment is lyrical. It hasn't happened yet, but this is paving the way for how God is going to eventually restore Israel. All throughout these chapters, in Isaiah 40, up to this point, he keeps saying, comfort, I love you you're precious, you're honored, I have a plan. In, verse, in chapter 46, it says, my salvation is not far away. Hang on, stay with me, trust, have faith, I will deliver you. And now he keeps giving these little clues about how that's going to take place. Ultimately, it's going to take place by removing Babylon from power so that Israel can come back into the land. Continues here, sit in silence, go into darkness, queen city of the Babylonians. And again, this is the, the person or the people group that used to be up here. Now they're sitting in silence and in darkness. Everything has been turned upside on its head. No more will you be called queen of kingdoms. This is how it plays out. I was angry with my people and desecrated my inheritance. I gave them into your hand and you showed them no mercy. Even on the aged, you laid a very heavy yoke. Why is this reversal happening for Babylon? It goes like this. Step one, God was angry with Judah and Jerusalem because they weren't following the Torah, because they were completely detached from Yahweh, because they had sin and rebellion and recalcitrance built up against God. And he had been saying over and over and over and over and over and over and over, over, get your act together or something's going to happen. Well, that something happened. So he gives them over to Babylon. He gives them over to exile, to destruction, and to judgment. And we've been talking about for the past few months about how that creates these periods of doubt and question where you begin to say, does God still love me? We walk through these every day. Something happens with a relationship. Something happens with your finances. Something happens with your work. And you begin to say, does God still love me? Is he still invested in me? Does he still have a plan for me? So we see these moments here where he gives them over because of their sinfulness. But what's so weird is the judgment against Babylon is, you didn't show them any mercy. They never had the instructions to be merciful to this people group. It was just, I guess, understood that they were supposed to be merciful. So God's a bit angry at Babylon for not being merciful. And then beyond that, Babylon is characterized by self-indulgent autonomy. That's fancy college talk for they think that they could do everything on their own. And the things that they did on their own resulted in massive amounts of stuff. Sweet couches and sweet picture frames and stuff. Probably not picture frames. I don't know. That's not an ancient thing. But, you know, just stuff. Stuff continues on and it begins to explain why this is happening. Now then, listen, you lover of pleasure lounging in your security and saying to yourself, I am and there is no one besides me. Remember, all throughout this text, God keeps saying, there's nobody like me. But now we have Babylon who's lounging in their security, who's taking faith in their own works and in all of their stuff that's all around their house and saying, there's nobody like me. I'm on top of the world. You can't touch me. Both of these things, it goes on, I will never be a widow. This is what they're saying in their mind, or suffer the loss of children. But both of these things will overtake you in a moment, on a single day, loss of children and widowhood. Let's follow this motif out for a moment. If the city, if the people is personified as a woman... The two things that allowed women to live fruitfully in the ancient Near East were husbands and children. In this text, she thinks that she's got it all. She's got all the stuff. She used to be tender and delicate. She had, um, her life was just beautiful, but now the trust that they were placing in their own accomplishments and in themselves, God is saying, I'm gonna take it from you. And in a moment, you'll be a widow and you'll be childless, meaning you will be dead. No ties to the land, no inheritance, nobody to support you when you're getting old and decrepit. Like you have all these things where God is taking away those sources of trust and those sources of hope that this people had. The self-deceived empire, Walter Brueggemann says, is shown to be completely impotent and helpless in the face of Yahweh. There is only one source of power and well-being and Babylon long ago rejected that. Now comes the sure consequence of such a foolish way in the world. This text is coming to a head where he's saying, Babylon, you think that you're in control, you're not. I'm in control. I have a plan And for you, it's coming to an end because you don't trust me at all, because you weren't merciful at all, because you thought you had everything laid out before you. You have trusted in your wickedness and have said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge mislead you when you say to yourself, I am, and there is none besides me. I think we're seeing how this Plays out in this text. And Babylon here is lacking mercy and they're participating in injustice. The people that they're hurting and oppressing in this text are the aged ones. That's the only information that we have about this text. They have all these things, but they're even taking advantage of the elderly. So they're lacking mercy in how they go about uh, dealing with Israel, and they're taking advantage of people that shouldn't be taken advantage of. In the ancient Near East, these were really important things. You don't mess with widows. You don't mess with old people. You don't mess with orphans. Babylon suffered because of their perceived autonomy, because of their indulgence, because of their misplaced trust, and because of their arrogance. All of these things they thought they had just laid out for them, but those were the things that were eventually leading to their destruction. This is where I believe the tie comes in. When we read the text, we oftentimes put ourselves in the place of the good people. This is why Jesus was revolutionary when he told stories, right? Because at the end of the story was always that twist, like the M. Night Shyamalan twist except better, where you as the audience are the bad ones. The parable of the Good Samaritan, right? We have these characters, the Levite and the priest and these folks that were supposed to be doing their jobs in helping people, but they didn't do it all in different ways. And the hero of the story is who? The Samaritan. Samaritan. Which in that context, they were hated. They were despised. And there was that twist where Jesus is saying, be like that guy. The guy that you hate. The guy that you have this built up animosity towards. The guy that you have written off as having nothing to do with my kingdom. Be like him. When we read the Bible, we put ourselves in the place of the good people. All throughout the text, especially when Jesus is talking, it's it's very pointed in the, the people that he's pointing his finger at. And the people that he's usually pointing his finger at look a lot and act a lot like us. The religious leaders, the Pharisees, the one who thinks they have everything, the ones that attend these beautiful church services and know stuff that other people don't know. We think we're okay, but the message that Jesus keeps telling us is, you're not okay. The people that you think are in are actually not in, and the people that you think are out are actually in. In this text, the temptation for us might be to read it as, ooh, dirty Babylon, you virgin daughter Babylon, you're going to get yours. Are we so dissimilar though? We could look at this in three different ways. Are we so dissimilar as a nation? And again, I don't want to get very political with this, but we could just look around our country, which is admittedly great and beautiful and free but yet with that freedom, we make a lot of decisions, even each and every day, that oppress people, that cause injustice, that force us to be the ones who love to live in luxury and think that we're okay. Trusting not in God or Jesus or salvation or redemption, but trusting in stuff, the advances the technological progress that we've had. We had a, a teachers' meeting this past week, and they threw out some statistics that were disgusting. Stuff like, all students ages three through 18. Of those students, 78% of them have cell phones. You're like, three through 18, three years old, talking on a cell phone. I would just love to leave a daycare and see like the pre-K3, like out on a cell phone, like just laid up against the wall, like, yo, what's up, uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm just, it's cookie time, right? I'm just having a cookie. Hold on, got another call coming in. You know, like, got to update my Instagram. (laughs) Three-year-old with all this stuff. Like, the way that we're going, and I'm not anti-technology, of course, but the way that we're going, it's easy to not trust in God. It's easy to not trust in this. Why? Because we can just get all of our answers from the phone that's in our pocket, or we can get all of our answers from all this technological stuff. We have TVs that can program our shows. We have TVs that have Netflix embedded into them, which I think is awesome. We have houses that, like are climate controlled. You can be driving down Route 50. I wouldn't suggest this. You're in the passenger side of the car while someone else is driving and you can climate control your house. I mean, you can do all kinds of crazy stuff. And we have thought for years and years and years that this is the stuff that's gonna make us autonomous and okay and comfortable. And the tie kind of would be, that's, that's the stuff that God's saying to Babylon. It's just like, you, you, you're you Used to be tender and delicate. You used to be mollycoddled. But that's not where you should be. It, is this so dissimilar for us, even as a community? That's like broad-scale stuff. But like right here in this mix, are we so dissimilar from Babylon? The things that we trust in. What do they look like? The things that we place our hope in. What is? What is that? And then as individuals, we see this as well where if I was listening to this story, like in that kind of Jesus telling a parable motif, after hearing this chapter,
1: I'm Babylon.
0: I'm the one who trusts in stuff and who trusts in technological advancement and who trusts in my own smarts and the the wisdom of the world. Babylon is trusting in their sorcery and their astrology, which at this time was like cutting-edge stuff. And we've made it so easy for ourselves to not walk along a path of faith or trust because it's so easy for us to figure out what it is that we need or what it is that we can do to fix this problem or that problem. As we look at this text, how is it that we're so dissimilar? We read this Prayer earlier on, and I just want to reread it, and we're going to close with this because the things that this prayer is saying to us are heavy and they're deep and they're important. Side note Hannah picks the liturgies here. She had no idea what I was talking about, so this text, the fact that she's picking it that corresponds with what we're talking about, I think is pretty cool. But listen to what's happening here. It says, Righteous Father, we who own more than we use, can I get an amen? Our closets, right? even tonight, I thought, man, I've had this shirt for like three years. It is tired. Do people say that about clothes? Sounds right. This shirt is tired, or these jeans don't, don't look right. You know what I mean? Like, we want more stuff when we have so much stuff. We who own more than we use, look at our pantries, look at our houses, look at your garage. If you have a garage, it's filled with junk, That we think we're going to use kate and i have moved five times in our five years of marriage we take boxes from one house to the next and we don't open them they're filled with stuff and we think well we just got to keep this and it's like got recipe books and all this stuff that we we don't even open the boxes when we get into our new house my office filled with books and boxes that are unopened we proclaim more than we experience we request more than we need we come asking your forgiveness We seek your salvation then act like we save ourselves it's easy to be humble and it's easy to be contrite here but when we live we live as autonomous individuals whose fate lies right here we roll up our sleeves and we get to work and we create our own destiny We beg for your forgiveness, then we repeat our errors. We experience your grace, and then we act defeated. I could just hang out right there. Over and over and over, I've experienced grace, and over and over and over, after sin or bad decisions, or this or that, I go into my, metaphorical closet of guilt and shame and I dump the ashes on my head, put some sackcloth on and just sit there and mope for a few days. You know what I mean? It's like we've experienced grace but then we act defeated. We rely on God's power but only in the hard times. If there was like a sweet pie graph or like some kind of chart where your prayer life in correspondence to your troubles it would probably correspond really well. Dimitri Martin does a lot of cool charts like that. I wish that we could have a big, huge Dimitri Martin chart where that corresponds. If you don't know Dimitri Martin, apologies. Look him up, he's funny. We rely on your power, but only in hard times. We have become confused and misguided. Forgive our every defection. Bring us to an unbroken commitment and a steady trust through Jesus Christ, who is the way of hope, the truth of God, and the life of love now and always couple things. First, when you read the text, hear what it's saying. In this text here, yeah, it's ancient. I mean, it's 6th century BC. It's about Babylon, a world power that God has used to accomplish one thing, but they kind of failed in some other areas, and then they're gonna, they're gonna get judged for it. That creates some difficulties for us, but still hear it in its ancient context, but then see the similarities between what they're doing and how we live lives of luxury lives of extravagance and you can be sitting there thinking my life ain't extravagant i can barely pay my bills true but we still the the way that this looks in comparison to other people's i think that there's still something to be said for that the other thing that i think is important for us to see as well is the things that we're trusting in often are ourselves our skills our talents, our giftings, our knowledge, our cell phones, our computers, our stuff. We're not so dissimilar from Babylon. And finally, if those two things are relatively in the world of truth for us, reorient yourself to trusting in Christ. Whatever that looks like for you. Maybe it looks like we get rid of some of our stuff. There's a garage sale for orphans happening. I believe it's next weekend, is that right? Next weekend, Remedy could probably take your stuff. So if you have stuff, give it away. Um, If it's relying on yourself, keep that in check through accountability or through prayer or through some sort of committed discipleship or something to that effect where the person that we're striving after and focusing on is Jesus, not ourselves, and our stuff. Is that difficult? Yeah. Is it realistic? Maybe. <laughs> but is it the direction we should be heading? Yeah, absolutely. This text, though ancient, has a lot to do with us. Don't immediately read it and think, oh, I'm the good guy. I'm Israel. Hear the resonances that we have with Babylon, and then hear how Christ, the way of hope, the truth of God, the life of love, now and always, rectifies that and brings about redemption, reconciliation, and restoration.